0: breakfast the cookbook the how not to die cook the last og cookbook how to get mad culinary skills Tracy Morgan's on the cover. High-Protein Vegan Cookbook. 125 Hearty Plant-Based Recipes. The Zero Waste Cookbook. The I'm So Hungover Cookbook. The Skinny Taste Air Fryer Cookbook. Solo, a
1: modern cookbook for a party of one.
0: These are all actual names of cookbooks in print right now. You can pick any of them up at your local bookstore.
1: People don't necessarily think of it, but a cookbook or a menu is an important, like, historic document that gives you a really fascinating snapshot of what was happening at a particular point in time.
0: Magdalene Link spends a lot of time surrounded by cookbooks, not at the bookstore, but in the Missouri Historical Society's library archives.
1: So you can compare a cookbook that was written prior to World War I with one that was written during the war and the recipes will have the same names, but they're completely different. And that's because rationing was happening. That's because people weren't able to get certain things, you know. um, Even department stores really, like, they implemented different rationing um, throughout the war. So certain stores didn't serve meat on certain days. It was sugar-free on other days. It was dairy-free on another day. Um, It was gluten-free, what we would now call gluten-free on another day, because they were saving all of these things um, as part of a war effort. So that's a really interesting way to look at it. Another really... um, Interesting way of looking at it is that, you know, prices, you know, you can see what was happening with the economy. Um, you can see all of a sudden things will get really expensive, or they'll be very, very cheap. And if you think about that, as far as economics go, like, that's another way to kind of figure out what was happening um, at the time. And then I would also say with old cookbooks especially, a lot of them include um, sections about etiquette or table settings or how to host dinner parties or that kind of thing. And perhaps the mother of all cookbooks, The Joy of Cooking by Irma Rombauer.
0: It's a heavy one. If you don't have it, your grandparents or parents probably did. Julia Child said herself, if she could only have one cookbook on her shelf, this would be it. Irma was a Saint Louisan, born here in 1877. Her no frills cookbook has
1: been in print with various updates since 1931. She interestingly enough worked at some department stores teaching cooking classes uh, prior to prior to doing her cookbook and then in the early days she was still there um, before it kind of exploded into what it is now. Um, but, uh, you know, an incredibly important figure as far as food is concerned because you're almost hard-pressed to find someone who isn't familiar with the title or if it's someone who's not familiar with the title, if you kind of ex- describe it to them, then they're usually like, oh, yeah, like my grandparents had a copy of that. Yeah. Or like, oh, my mom has that on her shelf or my dad has that and it's like on his shelf. Like it's one of those things that is – It's very, very American um, and incredibly important as far as food history goes, um, as far as recipes goes, because so many editions of that have been published and the recipes have changed um, to sort of suit the American palate, but also to sort of suit whatever was going on at the time.
0: Very, very American. And also, it turns out, very, very St. Louis. (coughs) Today on Abbey Eats St. Louis, we're jumping into a hot, tasty history lesson. The things we can learn from cookbooks without ever setting foot in the kitchen, where you can find a literal library of restaurant menus and the one food that best defines St. Louis tastes.
1: I think this is like one of the few examples where you can actually definitively say like This is the recipe. This is the person who made
2: it.
0: Plus, we'll introduce you to the local chef who's putting a new spin on some of the city's old favorites.
2: But they always come back to what they know.
0: And tell you why you should be taking pictures of your food for history's sake. I'll set a timer now. 10 seconds. And let's see how many St. Louis foods you can come up with. You know, the foods you think of when you think about this town. I'm not giving you any more hints. All right, ready? Go. And time. Let's review your list. If toasted ravioli, gooey butter cake, or Provel cheese didn't make your list, come on, that's like losing the points for not rating your name, people. Maybe Emo's Pizza, Ted Drew's Frozen Custard. Give yourself a pat on the back if you wrote down Vest Soda or Red Hot Ripplets. But this next one is either going to make you say, oh, duh, or wait, what? I'm talking about Famous Bar French Onion Soup. It was served at the renowned department store until it was sold to Macy's in 2006. Yeah, department store food. Remember, long before y'all ran your local shops out of business with your Amazon Prime addiction— People used to spend their entire day at department stores and in St. Louis famous bar was king and they had a restaurant and their French onion soup was so popular they had soup stands within the store so
1: you could slurp it while you shopped and I think it was by about 1985 or so um, it was 85 they had sold approximately yeah so by 1985 they had sold like 17.5 million orders of soup. Wow. And it does not specify that it's necessarily French onion, but 17.5 million orders of soup of any kind is pretty impressive. (laughs) That is a lot. That's just an absurd amount of soup.
0: But since the stores have become history, we needed to turn to historians to find out more. Magdalene Link is a library assistant with the Historical Society. When we reached out to you, we had a question specifically about the famous bar French onion soup. Mm-hmm. When you first heard that was the inquiry and in what you'd have to be kind of looking into, mm-hmm. were you, on one hand, oh no, this is going to be tough. How am I going to find this? Or were you saying, oh sure, I already know what I should be looking for?
1: Um, so that was, so yes and no, uh, <laughs> both parts of that. Um, so I was very familiar with the soup, I've eaten it. I ate it my entire life growing up. Um, (laughs) That was like a normal occurrence for us was to go downtown and have that for lunch. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was a bit nervous that we maybe wouldn't have anything that I was particularly looking for. But then I did remember that we have, you know, obviously we have a really large menu collection. A lot of the menu collection um, has... Uh, relies on stuff from hotels and department stores. Um, it's maybe about a third of the menus we have are from different hotels in St. Louis and that kind of thing. So, why is I that? Knew, um, Just because I think they were more prone to keep things for smaller events. Mm. Um, So, you know, if you're constantly having promotional events at your department store, and especially in the early 20th century where you're having all these promotional events that are, you know, maybe one day things or that are pretty big deals um, because going to a department store was a big outing for people. It was like if you're going to an important event at a hotel, somebody's going to save the menu from that. So I knew we would have menus at the very least. Um, And then I was a bit unsure if I could find any more of the history side of things because food history is a bit unless somebody wrote it down and it's coming directly from the person who created the recipe, it's a lot of speculation, I think. Um, So I was a bit unsure um, if we would find anything specific to, you know, that recipe or anything like that. And that was where I happened to find that the person who created it was interviewed. Uh, And then I happened to find a bunch of versions of the recipe printed in the Post-Dispatch and other newspapers. Um, So it was obviously something a lot of people wanted. And I think that the The fact that the general public was kind of yearning to know how to make this thing kind of benefited us (laughs) to some extent. because It was
0: a tall order, but Magdalene delivered. A stack of cookbooks, menus, and other documents all about Famous Bar's French onion soup.
1: There's a lot of things like these other dishes that are, you know, people kind of associate with St. Louis that like, we don't know where it came from. Like, I mean, you can imply, like, I mean, the story of toasted ravioli, it's like, well... 900 places claim to have invented toasted ravioli like it's you know it's one of those things like Provel cheese as well it's like at some point in time somebody decided to mash a bunch of liquefied cheese together and out came Provel. <laughs> like we don't know exactly where it came from so I think this is like one of the few examples where you can actually definitively say like this is the recipe this is the person who made it this is where it was served this is how long it was served for and like here's how you can make it yourself um, so it's a bit different, I think, than like some other stuff just because like it happens to be so well documented. Now why this is so well documented as opposed to something else, I have no idea. <laughs> Could not tell you because people, I think, are ju- have just as strong of opinions about like gooey butter cake or something as they do about soup, <laughs> which That's is kind of weird. odd, but yes. it's
0: true. <laughs> she found it on a famous bar dining room menu from 1932. But then they were serving up something very different from what we think of now. The joy of cooking
1: is probably a good reference for the recipe at the time. It's pretty standard. Um, You know, you have onions, Mm -hmm. you have milk or stock, or milk and stock, I should say. Pretty um, pretty basic seasonings, um, you know, parsley, nutmeg, paprika, salt, pepper, um, that kind of thing. But if you read the recipe, you actually... um, Simmer everything together, then strain the onions out. And at no point does it instruct you to add them back in. Um, it does mention that you should serve them in each an uh, in individual cups. It does not say anything though about you know croutons or bread or anything like that. Yeah, you're almost uh, to sprinkle. unrecognizable. Yeah, for so us you're now. supposed to sprinkle like a little bit of cheese on top, a little bit of parsley. Um, not even sticking it under a broiler or anything like that.
0: The recipe slowly evolved over the years, adding a crouton or even stale bread to thicken it up. But it wasn't until years later that soup magic was really on.
1: What makes this one so different is that it has an incredibly large amount of flour and butter in it to make a roux and to thicken it um, and the recipe kind of almost reads like a gumbo recipe to some extent. Um, you are making a roux, a very thick roux actually, um, and you're cooking it down, actually, until it gets a bit more golden and brown in color. And then to that, you're adding in your, you know, your beef bouillon and your white wine and stuff. And then letting it simmer for, I believe it was about two hours. Um, so in addition to it already have been made thicker by this addition of this, you know, lot, you know, this Thickening really, ages, yeah, this yeah. like heavy base, you're also letting it cook down. So a lot of the moisture is coming out of everything that you've put in there. So this recipe, which starts out with three pounds of onions, um, and three quarts of beef bouillon, which is, you know, a quart is four cups. So that's, you know, 12 cups of, um, beef stock. You're only ending up with an eight cup recipe, which is kind of crazy, um, that that reduces that much. So, Of course it was very delicious. Um, It's kind of, once you understand the logic there, where you're like, well, of course it was really delicious. Like, it had a bunch of butter in it and was like, (laughs) basically. The St. Louis story. Of course it was was delicious. We used too much butter. Yeah, it has like, (laughs) you know, it has a lot of butter and a lot of like really delicious things in it. And so if you cook all those things down, logic would, you know logic would lead you to believe that it's going to be really delicious. The guy who is said to have invented it, his name was Manfred Zettel. Um, He was from Austria. He came to the United States in 1963 working as a chef, um, originally in New York, and then kind of traveled to St. Louis for an event or something. He was kind of friends with the May family. I'm not 100% sure, Um, but he had some Midwestern connections nonetheless. And then went back to New York and was cooking at the New York World's Fair in 1964, and then came back to St. Louis in fall of 64. And when he got here in fall of 64, um, he was hired by, I believe, Eric Dahl. And Eric Dahl was one of the kind of heads of the food services at Famous Bar, and he eventually... um, hired Zettel to be the executive chef of not just the restaurants, but the employee cafeterias. And this wasn't just the downtown flagship store. This was all of their locations. That's a major so job, So he was a, in charge of all things bar yeah. restaurant food. Um, and that included, like, you know, executive chef for not just the restaurants and the cafes, but depending on the store, you had candy counters, you had pastry shops, um, you had kind of grab-and-go things. Like I mentioned, you had the employee... Um, You know, the employee cafeterias, so there were all kinds of things that he was in charge of. Um, and he kind of came to fame um, kind of as a chef in his own way of just kind of like cooking. He was, you know, very into, you know, traditional German food and Austrian food um, and stuff that he grew up eating, Um, and so had a background that was classically trained, had a background in, you know, European styles of cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, So he came here, and around that time, they were also kind of looking to revamp their menu um, and to kind of look at what it meant to kind of spend a day in a department store, so to speak.
0: In a 2012 interview, Manfred was asked why it was so well-loved, and he simply said, because it was the best. That is confidence. You know, going back earlier again to some of the things you mentioned about the importance of collecting these, Mm -hmm. and what do you think the fact that Zettel comes in with this soup, of all things on the menu, Mm -hmm. a soup, goes crazy here in St. Louis, what do you think that kind of says about society at the time where this started blowing up, and the fact that it's still something mm-hmm. that people love to talk about.
1: Well I think part of it is like nostalgia that people had even at the time. So Zettel was from Austria, um and St. Louis, I mean, had by the sixties we still had a very, very large and heavy German and Austrian influence and a lot of immigrants, Um, a lot of people were first-generation Americans still. You have these people who are, you know, very closely related to either family members, um, you know, either their parents or their grandparents, who weren't from the United States, who are from Germany or Austria or somewhere in Europe, um, who maybe made something that was similar. So this probably touched on, you know, kind of those notes of nostalgia for them at that time period, Um, because I think people kind of forget that St. Louis was quite so German for Mm -hmm. such a long amount of time. Um, Like, for instance, the St. Louis public schools published their annual report in German and English up until, like, the turn of the century. Like, there were that many native German speakers. Like, we have maps from the 1930s that show, you know, just Swiss and French populations, just German and Lithuanian. Russian and Lithuanian populations, just where Germans were living. And so we had these, like, really, really strong immigrant influences that we weren't that far removed from.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you can also really tell, whenever you talk to people about this, this is ingrained in a a cultural thing. mm -hmm, So when you mm -hmm. were finding proof of that Mm -hmm. in the archival
1: items that you've been able to pull here, I mean, were you surprised by anything that you found? Um... I was more surprised by the recipe than anything else. Um, The kind of folklore that goes with it, so to speak, is, you know, it's fairly consistent, um, you know, from everything that you, what I've read, which was a good thing. uh, Because then I could say that, like, you know, once I found that interview with Zettel from 2012, I was able to say, like, okay, this is definitely what happened. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It wasn't just some sort of, you know... Fallacy that somebody created just so that it sounded really good. Um, but I was really just more surprised with, you know, the recipe itself as opposed to anything else. Um, I knew that it was pretty, pretty beloved. Like I said, I ate it all the time growing up. Like mm-hmm. every time we were there, we probably had lunch. Um, you know, my dad worked downtown. My mother remembered getting it as a kid. My grandparents would take us there. So it was, I mean, it was very much a part of my life until that place closed. Um, but it's, it's funny because if you mention, if you, I mean, if you say the word French onion soup to someone, they immediately know what you're talking about.
0: The chafing dishes at the flagship Famous Bar in the Railway Exchange Building downtown have long cooled. But you can still walk into a restaurant and order Famous Bar French Onion Soup by name. Just now, it's across the street in the Union 30 restaurant, part of the new Hotel St. Louis.
2: My name is uh, Chef Matthew Birkenmeyer. Everybody likes to call me Chef Burke? Uh, born and raised here in St. Louis, and I am the executive chef for Hotel St. Louis. Very
0: cool. And we are here to talk about...
2: Oh, there it is.
0: There it is. Hold on. Got to load up the plate. Got to make it pretty. Tell me about
2: it. The Famous Bar Prime Rib French Onion Soup. Now, Famous Bar, of course, is right across the street from us, and we've had... Um, they were a staple in St. Louis for many years. And everybody in St. Louis and everybody's mother and everybody's grandmother and everybody's brother has a recipe. So it's not like it's a huge secret. But it's, it's unusual to see in a restaurant. So I took the Famous Bar French Onion Soup recipe, which is the standard, and I just tweaked it a little bit. Just so,
0: writing like this script has my nostrils filling with the smell of that soup. Man, it smelled so good. Doing this interview with the bowl of thick, creamy soup, a hearty layer of melty, gooey cheese on top, burnt in all the right places, I had a hard time keeping it together. That so called olfactory memory I'm experiencing right now is, in a lot of ways, part of our collective memory as St. Louisans. It's iconic.
2: It's iconic in St. Louis. And to be put into that area of those iconic dishes in St. Louis, that's what makes it fun. So if you can take something like that that people remember and you can trip trip into that nostalgia and say, wow. And I can't tell you how many people come here. It's like, I remember going up to the sixth floor, having that, and then the John White Burger with my mom and my dad. Or that was our weekly trip. Or my mom, that was our, when we got good grades, we'd go to Famous Bar and get the soup. Or we go to Famous Bar and get a sandwich or a salad. And when you can tap into that nostalgia of a memory of that something was great like that in somebody's family, I think that that's great. And that's what we're all about, and kind of just having fun with it.
0: Right. Anytime you start tapping into nostalgia, though, you do run the risk of people saying, that's not how I remember it. Correct. How do you balance that?
2: Well, you know, it's the same way. It's, you know, everybody's, everybody will have a, their critics, and that's fine. And I'm, I'm securing myself and saying, yeah, it's, it is the base recipe. Uh, it's exactly how it was, except I added a couple different twists to it. Uh, and that 's basically how cooking is you know you could take you can have a recipe from Gilda or from Emerald or whatever and take it home and you change two or three different things it 's basically what they were doing, but you change it to your taste and what you 're thinking of. So I just had to just change it up a little bit now. Could I put the primer of French onion just like it was there? Of course, but everybody could do that. Why not change it up and make it different? Add a little pizzazz, add a little oomph to it, and everybody 's like, and then they have it they 're like wow this is, this is fantastic, but it 's like I can taste it, (laughs) I can taste the Hints of Famous Bar in there, but then yet it has a different dimension to it, and they're like, this is really good.
0: Chef Burke looked to the past for several items on his new menu. Bush's Grove Cottage Fries, anyone? But he also mixes in some St. Louis classics for tastes that are totally different. Pulled pork, toasted raviolis, red-hot-riplet seasoning on the catfish, What's old can't be new again.
2: All these great restaurants in town, all these great chefs that you know we happen to be have in this town, it's it's really become a foodie town. But then you can also go back to the old the old staples and have all that classic stuff that, that we all had as kids or growing up. If
0: this is the future, and you were planning a future Hotel St. Louis menu, what are the items from 2019 you think people are gonna be nostalgic for one?
2: Wow, uh, that's a great question. Um, I think you'd have to look and see what, you know, the trends in the industry are now of what people are doing. I think that you'll have a lot of smoke stuff. I think you're going to have a lot of gluten-free items. And I think that you're going to have a lot of those, you know, off the, you know, I think you're going to have trends towards uh, vegan and vegetarian options. Uh, Farm to table. I think, you know, that, I mean, that's a great thing now and everybody's really hip on it. And I think it's great. You know, I'm proud to say that we use 67 different local vendors just for food alone. I mean, I mean from everything. I mean, from I mean cheese to meat to milk to whatever it is. And that's, that's how this community will thrive and grow is if we help each other. Instead of having a box store come in and order everything from out of town, I'm, I'm keeping the local farmers.
0: Chef Burke sees his restaurant as a launch point for people visiting St. Louis, offering a taste of St. Louis foods, past, present and future.
2: What's a pork steak? You know, nobody outside St. Louis knows what a pork steak is. So if somebody can come in from out of town, a traveler, and say, what's this pork steak special you have on Tuesday nights? And I can say, well, this is how we do it and this and they have it. This is the best thing I've ever had. Yeah,
0: so you get to welcome people. Oh,
2: absolutely. And that's what's so neat is that we're a business traveler's hotel.
0: Will we ever see Provel cheese on top of your French onion soup? Or absolutely
2: on not. No, no. I will not Provel? put Provel on there.
0: What about, Pro- okay, Provel in general. Well,
2: thoughts. yeah, of course. We have uh, <laughs> Provel in general and thoughts from St. Louis. Of course, I love it. You know, it, it is a eclectic taste, so and you have to know what it is. But uh, well, we put the Provel upstairs in form on the flatbreads. So we had the smokehouse flatbread with Pro Bell and then we had the Soulard uh veggie flatbread with Pro Bell. So just we a make little her. too
0: much to put in here?
2: It's a it's a little yeah, it's gonna it would set that up. It would take it to the next step for sure, but <laughs> I think it's got enough going on right now that it'll it'll be okay. So yeah. uh gotta stick with some traditions on some stuff.
0: Maybe it's good not to mess with that. But Manfred Zettel himself got a little creative when it came to the cheese on top of his original soup recipe.
1: And then on top of that was actually Swiss cheese that came from Kraft. Um, And I'm assuming Kraft was probably a vendor or something, and so they were able to get a good deal from them. Um, But he actually took the kind of off cuts, as you will, of cheese, uh, which like cheese ends. So basically... By the time you get done slicing cheese into perfect little slices for sandwiches, there's going to be like an end that's a little bit misshapen. So he took the cheese ends from Kraft, which I would – can't say for certain, but I would imagine if that was a vendor of yours, he probably got a pretty good deal on it and then was like, all right, like – Let's be crafty. I'm going to take these cheese ends. We're going to use this as the topping for our French onion soup. And then it was like once you put it on the menu, it was a huge success.
0: It may be impossible to ever fully recreate the famous bar experience because it was exactly that an experience a day at the store roaming amongst the different aisles. And we may never know who really invented some of St. Louis's other favorites, but whatever the next it food is, stands a much stronger chance of being remembered. And that's because of websites where people share their recipes, social media feeds, all about dining out, and conversations, like the one we're having right now, about food.
1: I definitely think it's you know incredibly important because you know food, just like anything else, um, if you don't kind of, because it is so fleeting, uh, you make it and it's gone. It's not like it lasts forever. So without having pictures or without people writing about the history of a certain dish or even just their own thoughts about a certain dish, that information wouldn't, I mean, it would just... It would be gone. Like, we would have no idea, short of like, you know, finding something like they would find in, you know, I don't know, Herculaneum or something, where it's like they find, you know, the remnants of something on like the inside of a pot. It's like, but do you actually, but, you know, it's a lot of implying then what, you know, what they did with the thing or, you know, based on other stuff that you know. But I think what, especially nowadays, you know, people, as annoying as it may be sometimes on social media to just see, like, what someone is eating constantly, <laughs> um, even though it's not that good of a picture, right. it still captures, a, a, you know, a moment in time. Like, that means something to them. Like, they're proud of themselves or that was delicious to them. So I think that's just as valid as, you know, any other type of, you know, written or, you know, photographed document or whatever. So, so
0: go ahead, post your food pics to your Instagram story. You know you want to. And as Irma Rambauer would probably agree today, phone eats first.
2: Ooh-la-la!
1: Ooh-la-la! Ooh-la-la!
0: Abby Eats St. Louis is a Five on Your Side production. I'm your host, Abby Larico. Producer is Ms. Dory Olmos. Special thanks to Aaron Ritchie, the Missouri Historical Society, and Hotel St. Louis for this one. Let us know your favorite foods from past restaurants, the good stuff you're eating this week, and anything else you'd like to hear about on the show. Hit us up on our Instagram page, at Abby Eat St. Louis. Like, subscribe, rate the podcast, you know the drill. And, as always, seize the plate.